In the show today, I'm going to be telling you about Libro, the audiobook company that lets you support your very own local bookstore with every purchase. If you want to skip to the end, though, you can check them out yourself by going to bestofleft.com slash Libro so they know I send you. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the precarious state of our immigration and asylum system, the legacy of neoliberalism and imperialism on South and Central America, the inhumanity practiced by both of our political parties, though not equally, and the ever-present possibility that things could get worse. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, The Takeaway, This Is Hell!, Counterspin and Intercepted with an additional members-only clip from Intercepted. And stay tuned to the end of the show for my analysis of the interplay between economics and immorality, particularly as it relates to immigration. The Biden administration said Monday it's officially ending the controversial Trump era remain in policy, um, remain in Mexico policy, and will no longer force asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are resolved in U.S. courts over months and years. The announcement came just hours after a judge lifted an injunction in effect since December, blocking Biden officials from terminating the program, formerly known as the MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocols. The Supreme Court ruled in June the Biden administration had the authority to end the policy. Some 70,000 asylum seekers were subjected to MPP from January 2019 to January 2021, when President Biden suspended the policy, fulfilling a campaign promise. But a federal court in Texas last December ordered the administration to restart the program after legal challenges from Texas and Missouri. Since then, nearly 6,000 more asylum seekers were enrolled in MPP, most have been forced to live in squalid makeshift border camps. Others found shelter in towns near the U.S.-Mexico border. This is an asylum seeker from Nicaragua who was living at a border camp in Matamoros, Mexico in 2020. I know this is not the ideal place for any child or any teenager, but while we're here, we're doing our best to save them from mental health problems. Sometimes the sadness is overwhelming, but you have to stay strong. I want my granddaughters to have a better future. Well, for more, we're joined by Efren Olivares, the deputy legal director at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project, formerly with the Texas Civil Rights Project in South Texas, where we met him. His new book is My Boy Will Die of Sorrow a memoir of immigration from the front lines. Um, Efren, welcome back to the Democracy Now! If you can talk about the significance of the end of MPP, and then we want to ask you about the separation of children and how many are still separated. Hi, Amy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the end of MPP or Remain in Mexico is a long time coming. We were pleased to see that the administration suspended the program, uh, right at the beginning of, of the Biden administration. Unfortunately, litigation and the courts got in the way and had prevented it from fully winding down the program. And in fact, the administration was forced to enroll additional people in MPP. Now that the Supreme Court has ruled and that the district court has dissolved the injunction, there's nothing stopping the Biden administration from promptly and orderly disenrolling everyone who is in MPP and allowing them to face their asylum cases or immigration proceedings 
from the United States where they will have access to counsel, the ability to, you know, gather evidence, present that evidence and everything that comes with with uh, presenting an immigration or asylum case. And Efren, you have you worked uh, on uh, legally on behalf of many immigrant families that were separated under the zero tier, uh, zero tolerance policy of uh, uh, former President Trump. What's the status with those separated uh, families today? Well, it's uh, it varies. There's a lot of situations. Some families have been reunited. Many are litigating their cases against the government as a result of that policy, which remarkably the Biden administration is defending in court. There are dozens of lawsuits still ongoing, and the Biden administration is defending Trump policies and Trump administration officials. And some families, unfortunately, are still separated. Some, some children who were taken from their parents are still in the U.S., either with relatives or, you know, in the foster care system. And some parents were deported to, to their home countries have not been located. So not every family has been reunited, reunited, excuse me, and some never will, unfortunately. And also the Biden administration is still enforcing the uh, Title 42 pandemic policy uh, and um, nearly two million asylum seekers were expelled without uh, due process as a result of Title 42. Uh, what do you see uh, happening uh, uh, with that policy in the future? Well, now the CDC and a host of scientists and public health experts have confirmed that there's no public health justification for Title 42 expulsions. Uh, unfortunately, the ending of Title 42 of that practice of expelling immigrants and asylum seekers has also been stopped in litigation. Uh, the administration has said multiple times that it intends to end that policy, but the courts have prevented it from doing so. We were pleased to see that in Congress, there was no codification of Title 42. So as the administration continues to litigate that against uh, Texas and other, other states, we look forward to having a science-based policy around, uh, around the pandemic, as well as a common sense immigration and asylum policy, so that those seeking safety in this country have an orderly way to do so. I wanted to go to a clip. I mean, as you've said, you represented many of the separated families at the border and have spoken about this over the years on Democracy Now!, as you write about in your new book, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines. This is what you write about a day in 2018 in McAllen, Texas. You said, I came back to the Benson Tower, standing outside, not on the corner of 17th and Austin Streets. I waited as the reporter set up the camera. Renee Feltz, with Democracy Now!, had traveled from New York City to McAllen to cover the separations. She was the first reporter who reached out to us about the brewing crisis, and we saw this as an opportunity to break the story to a wider audience, which was not yet aware of what we were seeing and hearing in court every day. Let's go to Renee's interview uh, in 2018, outside that federal courthouse in McAllen, a GEO group private prison transport bus backed up uh, behind you. These are the buses in which the immigrants, many of whom are parents who have had their children taken away, are transported to and from the courthouse, probably to a CBP detention facility. The sad thing is that many of those people have children, and many of them were separated this morning before they came to court and were led to believe that when they return to the detention facility, their children are going to be there. But we know that the children will not be there because the government is separating them. 
So it may surprise some to know, Efren Olivares, that um, some 1,000 children are still separated at this point. I believe when the Biden administration came in, they put Dr. Jill Biden, President Biden's wife, the first lady, overall in charge of reunification. Um, if you can talk about the effect, in the book, you also write about your own experience so many years ago being separated from your family. Yes, I, you know, that interview that you played, it was before this crisis had made national news and we were struggling to break through and make sure that the public knew what was really happening at the border. And one of the saddest things is that we will probably never know how many families were actually separated, given the government's intentional lack of record keeping. We will not know. Many families were separated and the children ended up at a shelter, but the shelter never knew that that child had been traveling with a family, with a parent or a father or a mother, because there was no record keeping. And if the children were too little to be able to explain that, we will never know truly how many children were separated. And the, as far as the lifelong consequences of that, you know, there, there's been widespread reporting on the trauma that that experience, the violent ripping apart and, and of, of a child from his or her mom or her dad. And, you know, just thinking of that audio that leaked, if that doesn't convey what this policy caused to children and to parents, it is still hard to understand how in this country in 2018 and ongoing, it was possible to see such a cruel violation of human rights against children. Between 2017 and 2021, more than 5,600 migrant families were separated at the U.S. southern border under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy. The policy ended amidst public outrage. And during his second week in office, President Biden signed an executive order establishing a family reunification task force. We're going to work to undo the moral and national shame of the previous administration that literally, not figuratively, ripped children from the arms of their families, their mothers and fathers at the border, and with no plan, none whatsoever, to reunify the children who are still in custody and, uh, and their parents. A year and a half into Biden's presidency, there are still some families separated from one another. Caitlin Dickerson is staff writer at The Atlantic, and her latest investigative piece, The Secret History of Family Separation, is a sweeping nearly 30,000-word piece chronicling the scope of family separation border policy. Caitlin, thanks so much for being here today on The Takeaway. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with the most immediate. How many families um, remain separated as a result of the Trump era zero tolerance policy? So the number of families that remain separated today is somewhere between 700 and 1,000, according to government records. That overall 5,000 plus number speaks to the entirety of the Trump administration. Some of those separations happened under zero tolerance, which started in the summer of 2018. Some of them happened prior in pilot programs that originally began kind of in secret. The country didn't know that they were going on. And part of the issue with reunifying these families today 
is that record creeping was really shockingly bad, in some cases, just non-existent at all. Some separations weren't documented anywhere. And so that's why you have so many families that still, according to government records, haven't been brought back together. Um, That number 700 to 1,000 is really large. And it is thought that some of those families have found ways to reunite with each other and and not alerted the federal government to that, uh, kind of understandably not wanting to deal with the U.S. government anymore. But there are more than 150 children who, to this day, the parents from whom they were separated still have not even been located by the American government. We just don't know where they are. We talk about this as a Trump-era policy. Certainly, there was public outrage um, at some of the images that resulted from important reporting during that time. But you also help us to understand that the Trump administration is not the first or last presidency or political administration to separate families at the border. That's right. I mean, this... Family separation that occurred under President Trump was an escalation of an approach to border enforcement known as prevention by deterrence, which really came out of 9-11. And it was when the Department of Homeland Security decided to try implementing what they call consequences, which means prosecution against people crossing the border in in order to discourage them from doing so. So this typically dealt with individual adults, um, and often individual adult men who were migrant laborers coming from Mexico in its early phases. Um, and then under Trump, of course, expanded to families. Prior to the Trump administration, families were separated occasionally, um, including under the Obama administration. That fell entirely outside of federal policy, unless it was done with the explicit purpose to for child safety, to protect a child who was thought to be crossing the border with somebody who was a threat to them. Maybe they weren't the real parent. Uh, Maybe they were the real parent, but were facing very serious criminal charges kind of unrelated to crossing the border and requesting asylum with their child. Um, Even though it did happen, though, I should point out the numbers were far, far, far lower than they had been under Trump. And those numbers, we really have never seen anything like it. For one moment, let's put aside the moral, the ethical, the humane. From a pure policy perspective, did these consequences work to reduce the number of migrants arriving at the southern border? They don't work. And and economists and other researchers who've looked at this issue for a very long time have pointed out that, you know, the main factors that influence immigration are much bigger long-term trends, you know, the economic circumstances in the countries that people are fleeing from, um, as well as the economic circumstances here, which is why migration dropped really dramatically, for example, during and after the 2008 recession, because there was very little work available. And then, of course, also the longer-term trends around public safety and whether people feel like their families are, you know, safe in their homes on a day-to-day basis. There is some research that shows on a very granular level, you know, and on an individual level, consequences can be effective in that, you know, if you, Melissa, were caught crossing the border illegally and you were prosecuted for doing so, your personal likelihood of trying to do so again may go down, but it's just nowhere near on the scale in terms of effectiveness as, again, you know, looking at these economic considerations and the public safety considerations and whether people feel like they're safe on a daily basis. In your piece, you really delve into what family separation looked like, felt like, was experienced like. Are there stories, maybe one that sticks out for you from your reporting? 
There are. That was really important to me to describe the separations themselves because for years we've only had the side of the story of the children and families who were involved. And it was really impossible to get anybody from the Border Patrol um, to go on the record and talk about it. But I met a woman named Nariz Gonzalez, who is a Salvadoran consular worker. She's one of the few people who are outside of, you know, the federal government officials who were allowed to be in these detention centers when separations took place. And she's really still traumatized by what she saw. You know, she described walking into the facility on the first day that separations were taking place and seeing a sea of crying and screaming children and families who were all kind of being pulled on at the same time. She said that she would literally see kids where you'd have a parent holding onto one arm and pulling and then a border patrol agent pulling onto the other arm, you know, so, so hard that she worried these kids were actually getting hurt. And, you know, parents wanted to fight back and, and these scenes were escalating. So there were times when she was actually asked by border patrol agents, you know, as a native Spanish speaker, as someone from El Salvador to actually intervene and put herself physically between agents and parents to try to calm them down and explain the situation to them which of course felt horrible to her, but she thought that in that moment, she was so out of control of what was going on that at the very least, what she wanted to do was prevent any of these children or parents from getting physically injured on top of the emotional trauma that they were enduring. Um, You know, once the parents were gone, she said that kids would surround her, you know, just grab onto her arms, her legs, her, her belt loops, just beg her for information, beg her not to leave at the end of the day because they were so confused. You know, more than anything, they just wanted to know where their parents were. Looking ahead, what is the likely future of family separation policy at our border? So there's nothing right now that prevents family separation from being implemented again tomorrow, Um, certainly in a future Trump administration, if one exists. President Trump push to re-implement family separations, you know, really immediately after he released an executive order ending them under political pressure he was facing from both Democrats and Republicans. But it was something that he lamented for the rest of his presidency and that he tried to convince people to go along with once again. And I think, you know, maybe more important than that one person and his views on family separation are the views of dozens of, you know, career border enforcement officials I interviewed who told me they felt that it was successful. They they still believe in the idea. They would say, you know, we would have really seen the success if we had just left it in place a couple weeks longer. You know, if we just held on for a little bit more time, it would have make, made a difference. You know, they believe so strongly in the effectiveness of deterrence and, and increasing the severity of deterrence alongside the increasing border crossings, despite, again, years of research calling those conclusions into question. So, you know, there's Congress has done nothing to outlaw a future family separation policy. Um, At one point, there was a lot of enthusiasm and momentum around outlawing the practice that seems to have disappeared. And so, again, there's there's just nothing to prevent this from coming back. And still a lot of people working in border enforcement who believe it's a good idea. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, 
They're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. Here in New York City, more than 100 asylum seekers arrived on buses from Texas early Wednesday morning at Port Authority, the bus terminal near Times Square. Another bus arrived Sunday with no advance notice from Texas officials. This is a Venezuelan-born migrant named Edwin Enrique Jimenez Guaido. It's been six years already, six years since I left my country, first to Colombia, next to Ecuador, and in February I decided to come here, to the Darien Reserve, Panama, Costa Rica. This comes as Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced he's sending asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities. On Friday, he said he chose a New York City to be a designated, quote, drop-off location along with Washington, D.C., as part of his opposition to what he called President Biden's so-called open border policies. People on the buses said they were told to sign a consent waiver. CNN reports the waiver includes a line that absolves Texas officials from liability, quote, arising of or in any way relating to any injuries and damages that may occur during the agreed transport to locations outside of Texas, unquote. At least eight people who got off the buses needed emergency medical attention, according to the New York Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. On Tuesday, New York City's Immigration Commissioner Manuel Castro and Social Services Commissioner Gary Jenkins addressed a city council hearing on the influx of asylum seekers into at least 11 shelters. What is new now is the systematic diversion of asylum seekers and immigrants to New York City by external forces, including by the disgusting, cruel, and cowardly actions of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. We will be tapping into our nonprofit providers to ensure asylum seekers have access to wraparound services, including legal support, health care, and education. 
There are now reports from legal service advocates that some families who could not provide proof of their relationships were separated or had to leave the shelters. Asylum seekers are also being met by a welcoming effort that includes members of the South Bronx Mutual Aid Collective, Legal Services and the New York Immigration Coalition, whose executive director, Murad Awalda, joins us now for more. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Murad. Explain exactly what's happening um, and what's happened at Port Authority. Thank you so much for having me, Amy, on your show today. I've uh, been a huge fan. and. Uh, you know, we're, I wish we were meeting on better terms, but what we're seeing happening right now is Governor Abbott using asylum seekers as political pawns to merely help increase his polling numbers down in Texas. Folks who are seeking asylum at the southern border have a legal right to do so. Um, we have seen people who are traveling upwards of 3,000 miles on foot to get to the southern border then present themselves and seek asylum at the southern border, be treated so horribly by the state of Texas, and then busing them over 2,000 miles away to New York City. Uh, yesterday morning, most folks who showed up, um, many of them were asking why they were sent to New York City. Uh, one man was trying to, you know, urgently wanting to speak to his wife and children, um, who were actually in San Antonio, Texas. So he wanted to go to San Antonio, Texas, after Texas had just dropped them off here in New York City. Um, folks are arriving on the bus, um, you know, sick. They're arriving um, extremely hungry and thirsty. They're not being given food. Um, and at most times without their uh, identity documents. So the, there's a huge effort that's happening right now to welcome them with dignity here in New York City um, and make sure that we are showing uh, not just, uh, you know, Governor Abbott how it should be done, but really seeing each other as humans in this moment. So how do you understand how it's happening? New York City officials are saying some 4,000 asylum seekers and migrants have traveled to New York in recent months, either by choice or because they were sent here by Texas state officials. So how do they decide who do they just shove them on a bus? That's what it seems like, uh, Amy. I think that there's uh, the governor of Texas is definitely misleading, and Texas officials are definitely misleading the asylum seekers. Um, you know, many of the folks who want who came here yesterday morning, who got off of the three buses that showed up, um, were asking, "Well, how do I get to North Carolina now, or how do I get to Wisconsin or Oregon or Louisiana?" Um, folks are being coerced into, uh, you know, signing this waiver to then be. Um, you know, sent up to New York City without any support, without any care. Um, last Friday, uh, we saw one young girl get off the bus who wasn't feeling well. Uh, she received emergency care and turned out she needed insulin because she's diabetic. Uh, on Sunday morning, there was young one young man who came off the bus and needed uh, treatment because he was having chest pain. Um, we're seeing people being put into really inhumane conditions um, not just on the bus, but even before the bus. And then when they get to New York City, we're providing them with care. So I think that the, the bigger piece here is Governor Abbott's uh, lack, for, lack of empathy, lack of compassion, lack of humanity. 
um, and really trying to rile up his base of folks who have historically um, been anti-immigrant. You mentioned that migration controls have always had to adjust to capitalism's contradictions and demands, which explains why these exploitative migration policies are bipartisan. So uh, how dependent is the U.S. economic system on exploiting migrant labor? Um, and it's something I, I cover much more extensively in the book, but it it is always migration has always been tied to the, the political economic question here in the U.S., right? And so from the earliest moments of the U.S. emerging as a nation on the world stage, you know, there has been this question of controlling who comes in and out of the country that has almost always been centered around labor. And that's not to say that, of course, at times there haven't been, you know, issues of, of race and xenophobia and all of that sort of stuff. And you can see intersections of that, say, in the Bracero program in the, in the 40s, 50s, when um, there was a you know a national labor shortage here during World War II. We needed bodies to keep factories running. I mean, it was just that simple. We needed people to continue growing our food while we shipped people overseas to fight. So Mexican labor largely stepped in to fill that gap. But the day right that 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 labor was no longer necessary, you had Operation Wetback come back in and start, um, and, and that's a literal, literally what it was named, to start removing Mexicans en masse from the country. So it, there's never been this, you know, it's never been steps in, in our migration policy towards necessarily establishing some kind of humane approach to migration, but rather has always centered around this question of political economy. Again, you were mentioning the Bracero program. That's the nineteen. The program started in nineteen forty-two to address labor shortages, which allowed millions of Mexican men to work legally in the United States on short-term labor contracts. Would such a program, especially during a pandemic when we have seen labor shortages, have been? Uh, I know that that's a, uh, not necessarily the case, but would such a program, especially during a pandemic, have been politically impossible in the United States? Whether that was in twenty twenty-one or this year, twenty twenty-two. I do think so, largely because again, there's no there's no real need for it in terms of the status uh, keeping the status quo intact, right? So part of what makes migrant labor so appealing, whether you're talking about undocumented labor or even you know say in the STEM fields, the H two B program, is that it's easily exploited and remains under the control of the state, right? And so, you know, to use the undocumented example, you can pay migrant workers pennies on the dollar, right? Because what recourse do they have? They don't have status. There's no way for them to readily organize themselves. And in fact, you know, historically, uh, CBP, had the Customs and Border and its, its predecessors, have even worked alongside of agriculture. They would deliver folks that they had apprehended to fields to work and then round them up and take them and deport them, having not paid them a dollar for their their labor. And so it's because migrants are always in this precarious kind of legal status, right, that it, it ensures that you're able to exploit them. And so in that sense, there's no need ever to institute like broad legalization programs in our modern era, just because it's like there's already 
plenty of migrants here that are able to be exploited. And so long as that remains true, right, that's going to remain so. And if you want to jump over, say, and, and you know, I've heard folks talk about the example of like Reagan's amnesty in 1986, um, that is like, oh, but look, there's this example where despite there being labor shortages during that era, in, again, in quotations, it was sort of like, well, he gave 3 million migrant status. But if you actually look at Reagan's incentive around the law, and why he actually agreed to push it and sign it was not because he felt sorry for this group of, of individuals or that he was worried about their exploitation, but rather it was this question of control, right? And this is a direct quote from Reagan that said he wanted to, quote, humanely regain control of our borders. And part of what the act did in 86 was to try to penalize employers rather than target migrants to regain that control, right? So essentially to try to close off some of the flow into the nation. But of course, that was going to run afoul of just the general capitalist tendency, right, to be able to do what it wanted to do to maintain profit. Um, and so it never got any teeth. You did end up, of course, seeing these folks gain, a lot of folks gain legal status, but it didn't eliminate the job opportunities to start bringing people over. If U.S. immigration policy reveals the dependence of the United States economic system on exploiting migrants and migrant labor, to you, why is that exploitation not central to the debate over U.S. immigration policy? What is the impact on the political debate over immigration when there is no focus or even mention of that exploitation? You know, it's tough to say what the particular parties are, are thinking at any um, one point. And, and I should say that it's like there's not some grand conspiracy, right, by capitalists or even by the, the political ruling class to keep migrants under thumb. It's just that to do anything else at this point would be such a massive disruption to the political status quo that it's just not something that they can deliver on, right? And so to that extent, there have historically been trends where you see at times, say, agriculturalists jumping on board with fighting, you know, certain repressive or, or uh, aggressive enforcement schemes. But that wasn't, again, because they were terribly interested in what happened to the migrants. They just wanted access to that labor pool. Right. And so I believe one author put it as is like they wanted workers, not fellow citizens. Um, and so to that extent, because migrants, again, aren't voting members, you know, that that limited way of even trying to participate in, in, in political life here, they're not being heard at that level. And then there's no incentive at this point to make any kind of radical changes. Right now, you would get massive political blowback from the right. And of course, here on the left, the, the Democrats have just been so inadequate and moving anything forward that there's just no reason right now to try to pursue votes from the collective sort of migrant interests and population. Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course, now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks. And you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky offers just such a plan, but while they are trying to squash the little guy, 
Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big-name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. On the other hand, Libro is a special purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with Bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com slash Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience. The White House has since announced some $2 billion in private sector commitments to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, part of what they've dubbed a call to action to engage the root causes of migration from the region by driving what officials repeatedly describe as an ecosystem of opportunity that will allow people of the region to build healthy lives at home. U.S. corporate news media never met a public-private partnership they didn't like, and they aren't so big on using critical history to shape foreign policy coverage. So if you want to hear challenging questions about this White House plan to bring peace and prosperity to northern Central America, they won't be the place to look. Our guest raises some of those questions in a recent piece co-authored for In These Times titled The White House's Plan to Stem Migration Protects Corporate Profits, Not People. Azadeh Shashahani is Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South. She's also a past president of the National Lawyers Guild. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Azadeh Shashahani. Thank you very much for having me. Well, U.S. government involvement in northern Central America is a long history, violent on many levels, and I don't want to pretend we're addressing all of that right now. But if you don't put the Biden administration's call to action in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in a historical context, it seems like you just can't see it clearly. So please talk us through a bit about what you and others see as primary points of concern about this plan and about the approach that it reflects? So one of the primary concerns is the administration's lack of acknowledgement about the long history of U.S. intervention and facilitating coups against leftist presidents and democratically elected governments in support of U.S. corporate and business interests in the region, you know, from Guatemala to El Salvador to Honduras. And in Honduras, as recently as 2009, of course, we had a coup supported by the Obama administration toppling the democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya. And so the U.S. obviously has had a very clear role in destabilizing the region, which has in turn led to forced migration. So, for example, the number of Honduran children crossing the border increased by more than 1,000% in 2014, so within five years of 
the coup. And as another example, immigration from Mexico has doubled since the U.S. signed the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, which has had the impact of undercutting a small business and crushing low-income workers and has made migration, really forced migration, a matter of survival. And so, you know, the question that we really need to be asking is, what is driving this call to action? Is it actually supporting people, including indigenous communities? Obviously not. You know, what lies at the heart of this call to action, like previous U.S. government plans towards Central America, and I should say Latin America generally, is to preserve and promote corporate interests. Well, concretely, for one thing, the U.S., we're told, has a commitment from this company, Sanmar, that we're told is going to create 4,000 jobs. You know, I think U.S. listeners understand that media are very interested in promises of job creation and much less interested in following up on how it plays out. But just using that as an example, what is there to think about there? Right. So Sanmar is a U.S.-based apparel company. And so supposedly it's going to purchase more from Elcatex, which is a Honduras-based garment manufacturer that Sanmar partially owns. And so the Collective of Honduran Women, which is an organization of women who work in Honduras's garment sweatshops, has long denounced the low wages, long hours, and serious repetitive motion injuries that they suffer in Honduras's textile industry. And they actually submitted a petition to the Inter-American Commission, which has been admitted. The petition was submitted on behalf of 26 women who have suffered some serious injuries as a result of working in the garment factories, including three LCAPEX workers with alleged permanent partial disabilities. And so, you know, these are issues of serious concern. And, you know, the issue is also lack of living wages and labor rights for the workers in the garment industry. And so the true beneficiary of Sanmar's increased purchasing from LCAPEX It is going to be Sanmar itself because Sanmar is a partial owner of Elcatex and also, you know, one of the corporate elite, which is in a pattern we see repeatedly that, you know, these business bills actually support the oligarchy in Northern Central America. Well, this is obviously connected because anti-corruption and the idea that corruption is going to be rooted out is key to the call to actions promises here. There's an angle list about, you know, you're going to get on this list if you've been involved in any sort of corruption. How do you see that playing out in practice in terms of these deals that are being made? Right. Well, we're not really seeing actual accountability, you know, when the one exception being Honduras. So, you know, the 2009 coup was followed by 12 years of plundering and corruption. And so now the Honduran president, Diomara Castro, and the new Congress have pledged to combat corruption and restore state institutions. So as a part of this, Honduras recently passed a new energy law which, among other elements, is basically going to enable the government to renegotiate the contracts by which it purchases energy 
from private energy producers and set more reasonable rates. Because right after the 2009 coup, the government has started negotiating these contracts with the private sector that basically gave them huge profits. So it was estimated that the Honduras energy company, about 70% of its revenue was going to these private companies, whereas if it produced the energy itself, it would be a lot less money. So, you know, you would think that this is something that the U.S. would be supporting Mm -hmm. based on the anti-corruption rhetoric at the root of the call to action and all the rest. But then we see the U.S. ambassador to Honduras criticizing the law on Twitter when it was introduced in the Honduran Congress, expressing worry about this effect on foreign investment, which again shows us that the U.S.'s true motives are corporate profit. Right. Here you have an example of a state saying they want to use their state resources to benefit their own people. And you have the U.S. saying, "Mm, well, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. It certainly should raise some questions. Part of what's frustrating about the ICE gone rogue framework is that it presents the Biden administration as somehow powerless when in fact they're not. That really sets the context, I think, for what we can expect and the battles really to come with the Biden administration. I think it's so important to understand how immigration enforcement has been a pillar of the Democratic Party's governance for three decades. And it really was under Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, you know, not Donald Trump exclusively, that an entire immigration enforcement apparatus that was bent on expanding detention and deportation, that was bent on criminalizing migration through criminal prosecutions, that was bent on militarizing the border, the very bipartisan agenda of detaining and deporting and terrorizing migrant communities. All Americans not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The Clinton years really normalized the most severe consequences of border militarization and mass detention both at the same time. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. is a really important year because 1994 was the year that the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone and create 200,000 jobs in this country by 1995 alone. The environmental and labor side agreements negotiated by our administration will make this agreement a force for social progress as well as economic growth. 
as Bill Clinton was signing NAFTA to ensure the free movement of capital, the impacts of which continue to be felt today, is when the Zapatistas rose up in armed rebellion, citing NAFTA as one of the reasons for their rebellion. And that was because the Zapatistas predicted, as many others did, that the North American Free Trade Agreement would bring misery and impoverishment specifically and especially across indigenous communities in Mexico, and that it was the latest iteration of neoliberal colonial capitalist warfare on their communities. In Mexico, for the Indian people, if you want food, if you want school, if you want health, you must die or kill for take this. We don't want more papers. We want schools, we want hospitals, we want land. We run support of the government. At the same time that NAFTA was being signed and rammed through, the Army Corps of Engineers was fencing the U.S.-Mexico border to constrict the movement of people coming in from Mexico. And the Bill Clinton administration knew that NAFTA would create more misery and hence more displacement and more migration, which is precisely why they try to constrict the very movement of the people that they have displaced. The solution is to welcome legal immigrants and legal legitimate refugees and to turn away those who do not obey the laws. We will make it tougher for illegal aliens to get into our country and we will increase the number of border patrol equipping and training them to be first-class law enforcement officers. Today's initiatives are about stopping crime, toughening the penalties for the criminals and giving our law enforcement people the tools they need to do their job. Uh, and it's certainly plain to anybody with eyes to see that the Border Patrol is drastically understaffed, breathtakingly understaffed. Border Patrol tripled in size and it became the second largest enforcement agency in the United States at the time. And also we saw Border Patrol adopt the official strategy of what they call prevention through deterrence. For example, I've asked the Attorney General to increase those elements of our Border Patrol strategy that are proving most effective, including the use of helicopters, night scopes, and all-terrain vehicles. I've asked the members of the cabinet to create for the first time a national detention and removal plan to dramatically increase the identification and removal of deportable illegal aliens. And it's actually intended to create border deaths because you're trying to deter through death. And operations such as Hold the Line in Texas, Operation Gatekeeper in California, Operation Safeguard in Arizona, all worked together to militarize the border under this strategy. One of the cornerstones of our fight against illegal immigration has been a get-tough policy at our borders. We initiated Operation Hold the Line at El Paso, Operation Gatekeeper in San Diego, and Operation Safeguard in Arizona, all with one clear intention to secure the southwest border. As we speak, these initiatives are making a substantial difference. Illegal immigration is down. Crime is down. 
And within six years of these operations, we saw that border deaths, which I argue we should more accurately call border killings because they are intentional and premeditated by the state, they increased by 509%. Under the budgets already passed, we've added 1,000 new Border Patrol agents just in the Southwest. By the end of 1996, our administration will have increased overall border personnel by 51% since 1993. Thirdly, I have asked for new funds to double the deportation of criminal aliens next year and to triple them by 1996. In 1996, Clinton passed two laws that really kind of saw the nexus of this dehumanizing rhetoric of quote-unquote crime and drugs and illegals. But we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. We must continue to do everything we can to strengthen our borders, enforce our laws, and remove illegal aliens from our country. This week, I sent strong legislation to Congress to try to stop those abuses, to secure our borders in the future, and to speed up deportation of illegal immigrants. these two laws did is they expanded the category of aggravated felony convictions, which essentially widened the net for detention and deportation of legal permanent residents who had minor convictions in the criminal legal system stemming from stop and frisk racist policing and the racist war on drugs. What happened is within a few years, the average daily detentions in the United States tripled and deportations shot up to an average of 150,000 people annually. Right now, we're deporting 110 illegal aliens every day. That's almost 40,000 a year. And we're going to do even better. Our plan will triple the number of criminal and other deportable aliens deported since 1993. And whether they're innocent or guilty of the crimes they're charged with in court, they're still here illegally, and they should be sent out of the country. As recently as last decade, half of the people that ICE detained came under its radar through what's called the Criminal Alien Program, which uses collaborations between local law enforcement and federal immigration enforcement as a pipeline for expulsion. And of course, this disproportionately impacts Black communities, Afro-Caribbean communities, communities that are doubly, triply punished through federal enforcement. Our country was built by immigrants, but it was built also by people who obeyed the law. We must be able to control our borders. We must uphold respect for our laws. We're cracking down on this huge problem we found when I got here, and we're going to keep working at it until we do much, much better. You know, this kind of structural inequality that was being entrenched through the war on crime, through the war on immigration, through the kind of war on welfare, all of these worked together to really entrench a criminalizing agenda on a, a number of racialized communities. And at the same time, it was justified through this kind of pathologizing rhetoric of, you know, that culture is the cause of poverty, rather than this deeply structural political inequality that was created as a consequence of racial capitalism. He 
write that migration flows and their governance exist in a broader cycle of displacement and reabsorption. Migrant protection protocols, together with the use of Title 42, a little-known health law that allows for expedited expulsions of people trying to enter the United States on public health grounds, is but the latest and greatest form of this, a means of tightly regulating migrant flows into the U.S. as even failures of capitalism increase the waves of human bodies cast upon its shores. So as capitalism reveals its shortcomings outside the United States, the U.S., limits the number of migrants entering the U.S. Has this increased with U.S. support of neoliberalism, both in the United States and abroad, especially in Central American nations? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. There's a very long and sorted history going back well over 100 years at this point of U.S. involvement um, in Central America, in particular Central and South America. But to be very brief about it, the U.S.'s insistence on opening up this half of the world to neoliberalism has consistently decimated the local economies, the local political structure. And, you know, the price of that ultimately is displaced people, right? And so there have just been increasing wave upon wave of displaced people as neoliberalism sort of failed attempts at doing what it does best, which is getting money for a few and leaving the rest out to dry. And so whether we're talking about NAFTA or further back, any other kind of reforms, you know, to desocialize things in Central American countries, in the end, right, the immiseration that results from all of those things is going to displace people, the uptick in crime, even the gang problem is actually a problem of US created political economy, right? We, we fund these wars in say El Salvador, upon thousands of young men are displaced from that country, come to the U.S., find a home in poor areas around the country, start becoming involved in gang life, create these large gangs. And then what do we do? We round them up and then send them back to their home countries to um, proliferate there, right? So even the gang problem is actually a product of the broader spectrum of, of U.S. foreign policy choices in Central America over the last 60 years. So that would suggest the problem is neoliberalism or neoliberalism at least exacerbates the problem. If that is the case, when it comes to migration policy specifically to you, what explains the lack of debate over neoliberalism? And is it, is it all just the media's fault? Why do we not uh, include neoliberalism within the debate over migrant policy? That is the question, I think. You know, for start, of course, I think there's a whole ideological structure that has really arisen to help defend neoliber- neoliberalism against its greatest, greatest tractors. But I also suspect that it's just, you know, in some ways, our own short memories about what's taken place, right? You can have Kamala Harris at the beginning of the Biden presidency take a trip to Central America and look those people dead in the face and say, do not come here, right? Do not come to the US, you will be turned back. You guys need to sort out your problems here, fix what's wrong here. And she can be entirely sincere about that, right? Believing that it is their problem, forgetting again that a huge portion of their problem has come from US involvement in the past. And so I think whether we're talking about, you know, the political elite all the way down to the rest of us, right? It's so easy just because the pile keeps growing higher and higher and higher 
of problems that that emerge from neoliberal policies from capitalism that it's easy to just forget that like this didn't just come out of a vacuum right that it has a history that's tied to it and yet because we're always under the next crisis it's so easy to just try to make a quick explanation or push off the problem onto somebody else and in this case you know neoliberalism is just very very good right at making problems personal in that sense of like you're in it because it's your fault right this is happening to you because you did something wrong um and again whether we're talking about nation states or poor individuals it's just such a strong ideological structure that that preserves this notion that whatever you were born into is your problem so are politics or the needs of capital the biggest obstacle to lifting limits on migrant labor are politics more powerful than the demands of the economic system here in the United States when it comes to migrant policy. I see both sort of as playing off of the other. In our immediate moment, political power is, I think, more tantamount to the immediate issues in that while, you know, there are the potential, at least economically, to take on many, many more migrants, right? This question of controlling the border uh, has to come foremost because what is a state to do if it doesn't have control over who can come in and come out. And so I think that in that sense politics probably has a stronger role to play at the moment only because this question of control this question of power is central given the the growing crisis of displaced people that keeps showing up at our doorstep. That being said though that you know I'm also a firm believer that the economic piece is what underlies so much of politics so in that respect who are the politicians answerable to? And it's, you know, in my other piece, it's like I point out, it's like, it's certainly not to the people, right? Because we haven't had any kind of, you know, serious economic reform that has bolstered the material conditions of individuals for many years now. And so in that respect, there's no looking at the issue from just one side or just the other. It is something that sort of exists in a cycle. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, explaining the long-awaited reversal of the Trump-era remain-in-Mexico policy. The takeaway looked at the legacy of the family separation policy. Democracy Now! discussed the Texas governor's policy of busing asylum seekers to Washington, D.C. and New York. This is Hell looked at the history of the role of economics in driving economic policy. Counterspin connected the dots between U.S. interventions in Central and South America to our current immigration policies. Intercepted looked back at the complementary and destructive policies of NAFTA and increased border enforcement under Bill Clinton. And This Is Hell looked more broadly at neoliberalism and economics on our immigration policies. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Intercepted, which dove deeper into the need to rethink the carceral history of our border policies. The new frontier of U.S. border militarization is not... Trump's wall. <laughs> it's not that symbolic wall on the border. It is this far more dangerous, far more invisible, far more threatening, and far more repressive form of immigration enforcement. 
now is not the time to come and the vast majority of people uh, will be turned away. Asylum processes at the border will not occur immediately, will take time to implement. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now, as promised at the top of the show, I have some thoughts on how economics interplays with morality or immorality. Frankly, I think economics bypasses morality. And it it doesn't logically follow that acting on economic incentives means that you are acting immorally. It just means that those are two different tracks that sometimes run parallel and sometimes diverge. One simple example that we uh, might have only talked about on the bonus show, but definitely talked about it, at least there, is a story that I think it was made famous by Freakonomics years ago, having to do with daycare centers. The situation seemed to be that parents were often late to pick up their children after daycare and having to pay to keep staff on site until the last late pickup was costing the centers money. And there had been attempts to convince people to try harder to arrive on time, but with limited success. So they decided to take the problem out of the realm of moral duty and put it in the realm of economics. Daycare centers began charging a small fee, usually something like a dollar a minute for every minute the parent was late, to try to sort of nudge people economically to arrive on time. But the surprise result was that the late pickups did not decrease they increased. And the key takeaway is that lateness had shifted from a moral obligation to a commodity to be purchased. And the hope was that the economic incentive would buttress the moral obligation, but instead it erased it. This is exactly what is at play when, for instance, immigration policy is framed in terms of jobs. To talk of jobs means we're talking about economics, and to talk about economics means that we don't have to talk about morality anymore. That's why we have phrases like, it's not personal, it's business, so that you can do something deeply immoral and claim to still be a moral person because it's just business. It's just economics. The reason being that once the mind has jumped tracks over to the world of economics, Morality is rarely considered, and so the door to wildly immoral ideas gets thrown wide open. I'll give you a few examples that are truly awful, so be warned that I'm about to discuss eugenics and Nazi extermination camps. I've been reading up a bit on these topics this summer, you know, a little beach reading, right? So in broad strokes, eugenics was about reshaping society through selective breeding and the controlled prevention of breeding. And what advocates claimed was that they were working toward a better, healthier, and more prosperous society. The mentality of eugenics wasn't pure economics in terms of dollars and cents being the only thing they were discussing, but it was certainly economics adjacent. The whole system was built on defining the unfit as in the unfit to live or unfit to procreate. And this very often had to do with economics and employment. A Harvard professor, Frank William Tusig, in his book Principles of Economics from 1921, called for the unemployable to be, quote, stamped out. 
and said that if society refused to subject hereditary misfits, the, quote, irretrievable criminals and tramps, unquote, to, quote, chloroform once and for all, unquote, then they could at least be prevented from, quote, propagating their kind, unquote. So there was a definite tension in the minds of many eugenicists that murder would probably be preferable, but that sterilization would have to do in a sort of compromise with the the weak-willed anti-murder constituency. But it gets better, because remember, we're talking about the economic line of thinking, wherein there is no room for morality. So in terms of creating incentive structures to change behavior, similar to, say, separating families at the border to discourage asylum seekers, try this one on for size, coming from the mind of a eugenicist. In order to discourage ill breeding, at least one eugenics advocate came up with the novel idea to deal with convicted murderers by killing their grandfathers. Think of that policy. You know, think twice before you procreate, because you'll be on the hook for any crimes your children and grandchildren commit, right? I mean, that, that may very well nudge people's behavior. Now on to the Nazis. A journalist, years after the war, sat down and spoke at length with one of the administrators of the Treblinka extermination camp, where trainfuls of Jews every day were taken to be murdered. This guy seems to be a bit of a sad sack who ended up in that position more by like failing to resist what he often saw as evil or at very least against the law or should be. But he just, you know, was saving his own life. He just sort of went along to get along, right? He didn't seem like a true devotee of the cause. So anyway, the journalist asks the administrator, what did you think at the time was the reason for the exterminations? And his answer came at once, quote, they wanted the Jews' money. You can't be serious. He was bewildered by the journalist's reaction of disbelief and then continued. But of course, have you any idea of the fantastic sums that were involved? That's how the steel in Sweden was bought. End quote. Now, to be clear, this is an absurd answer, but it's also a telling one. It uses the same tactic of switching a discussion that could be about morality, hatred, racism, discrimination, or any other similar terms in that category, and converts it into a discussion of economics. Just as modern-day anti-immigration advocates cover their immoral treatment of asylum seekers with economic concerns about jobs, it makes perfect sense that when immorality is taken to the absolute extreme, the exact same strategy would be employed to sort of soothe the conscience of the Nazis who actually carried out these deeds. And please don't bother getting upset about the comparison. There's no reason to mistake comparing for equating, and I am certainly not equating. But now to cap off our tour of economically supported immorality, have you ever even thought about why citizens of the Soviet Union weren't allowed to exit the Soviet Union, to immigrate away from the Soviet Union? I, I don't really ever recall being told the reasoning growing up. I, I, I think I was just left to assume that to strip someone of their personal freedom to leave is sort of evil, and the Soviet Union was evil, so I guess they just did it to be evil. And to be clear, I do think that it is absolutely terrible, an infringement of human rights, to ban a person from leaving their country. But of course, they gave a reason, and they couched it 
in economics. Now, the way the West describes it is that the Soviets were afraid of a brain drain because lots of smart people, you know, given the choice, would choose to leave the Soviet Union for a, a country in the Western Bloc, which fits perfectly into our understanding of our, you know, inherent superiority and how, of course, everyone would want to come live in the West and, and not uh, remain in the Soviet Union, which, you know, would be true for many, not all. But the way the Soviets described it was that citizens of the Soviet Union had been raised there, effectively invested in by the country. And so the country had the right to prevent them from leaving. I mean, why should some other country get the economic benefits from our investment? I mean, I don't know if you've ever raised kids. I haven't, but I used to be one. So I can vouch for the fact that they're a real drain on resources. And it takes a good long while before you start to see a return on that investment. So I can sort of see their point, right? If you see the citizens of the country as the product of the country, then to have them leave means you put in a bunch of resources and get no return on your investment. And to be sure, it would have also been a propaganda defeat for the Soviets if people had voluntarily left. And it could have been destabilizing to the system if people had been free to visit other countries and compare political systems for themselves. That's all still true. But when the Soviets decided they needed to infringe on people's human rights by not letting them leave the country, they framed their argument with economics. So back to our immigration policy, there is no doubt whatsoever that racism plays a large role in people's opposition to immigration, but it doesn't have to, and it's not necessarily the prime mover. Many millions may very well have, have simply had their brains rerouted away from ideas of morality and onto the train of economic thought where morality has no place. I mean, as, as we heard on the show today, the family separation policy is seen through the incorrect but not illogical lens that a cruel enough deterrence would slow immigration and asylum seeking. Now, studies have shown that separating families hasn't been much of a deterrent to immigrants and asylum seekers, but seen through the lens of economics, that conclusion could equally mean that either A, there's no need to implement a policy of systematic emotional torture because it doesn't produce the desired results, or B, the policy just may not have been torturous enough to produce the desired deterrence. Maybe we could try murdering their grandfathers. So for anyone who believes themselves to live guided by at least some degree of morality, don't let yourself be taken in by the siren song of economic nihilism that feels like a moral excuse to ignore morality. It's an illusion, and it will lead you to immoral acts. Now, where I do think racism comes in is, as I said, not necessarily as a prime mover. Like, people might not think, I hate brown people, so I want to stop immigration. What they may very well think is, I want to protect American jobs for Americans. Therefore, I think that we should have these extremely harsh immigration policies. Now, where the racism would come in is when the immorality of the policy is put front and center, it's much easier to hang on to your immoral illusion of an economic argument when you don't see the people involved as fully human. 
And I would argue that in this day and age, at least, that's probably the majority of people. You know, it's only the real hardcores who would put their racism first as their reason to oppose immigration, whereas most people will allow themselves to be led along by economic arguments that feel moral, and then they manage to stay in that mindset through a complicated set of reasons that includes that illusion of morality and the complicated mechanics of structural racism and jingoism that lead people to discount the humanity of people from other countries. All that said, though, if you still need an economic reason to justify your stance on immigration, I say take a page out of the Soviet handbook. It is exactly for the reasons that they wanted to restrict exit immigration that we should welcome immigrants looking to enter. Some other country invested in those people, sinking time, money, and resources into them to get them through their unproductive childhoods and will be the ones to benefit from their economic output for the rest of their lives. That actually sounds like such a great deal. It feels like we're cheating. But of course, that would be immoral. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes. In addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join us on our Best of Left Discord Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other shows, basically anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.